Alright, we're back for episode 31 of Herpetological Highlights. Uh, I'm Ben Marshall, as per usual, and joining me in co-hosting is Tom Major. And, well, once again, we're back to everybody's favourite little herpetological news area that is the news <laughs> niche. Yep, yep, the news niche. The most catchy title, oh wow, it's not the most catchy, it's not as catchy as uh, Species of the Bi-Week. Species of the Bi-Week. <laughs> yeah, I hate News Niche actually, I think it's super lame, but whatever, we've got another News Niche episode. I like doing these episodes because um, it's just a little bit more freeform, isn't it? Although I have to say, um, I'm a little bit out of the loop with herpetological science at the moment for a number of reasons. I was, oh my gosh, this is the worst timing for the News Niche then, isn't it? It because is. Because I'm in a similar sort of scenario. What's caused you all out of, out of the loopness? Well, there's kind of, there's, there's sort of two broad reasons. One of which is that my fieldwork is amping up to a ridiculous degree. Um, so that's sort of a legitimate excuse. I've actually been out in the field catching snakes rather than reading about snakes. Uh, and the second reason, which is, snakes. well, I've How been do you catch snakes. Well, yeah, and for actually, dumbass. annoyingly, I've actually been catching less snakes the more time I spend doing it, which is a bit weird. But I'm going to put that down to the snakes, not me, and that way I won't have some kind of sort of snake catcher crisis because that's the last thing I need. Um, yeah, it's always a study animal fault. Yeah, well, this is it. They're so blooming mysterious. Like, what are you supposed to do if you can't find them? You can't find them, you know. Yeah. Um, Why pick a study species that has a detectability of less than one percent? Well, I mean, I've been asking myself that question for a long time. It's amazing, though, my capacity to look for snakes and not find it tiresome. Um, <laughs> I was averaging like one <laughs> one snake or two snakes every sort of five hours, and now I'm down to about one snake every ten hours, and yet. The fervor with which I hunt is not diminished in the least. <laughs> and let's, you know, let's actually put that in perspective. That's pretty damn good survey effort for uh, snakes. That it is. is not to be sniffed at, even the worst end of what you're working with. <laughs> oh, thanks, mate. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of like the one hand, the like legitimate reason why I'm not keeping up. The other reason is, of course, the football has been on, the World Cup. Um, the what? You know who? The cup? The big cup. Cup? Ball, big, ball, big. ball. Foot, foot, sport. Um, foot, sport. Basically, loads of people from all over the world have trying to be getting the ball in the goal. Um, <laughs> more so okay. than the normal. Where are, these, where are the snakes involved in this, uh, this, well, this situation? This is it. The snakes aren't involved. But obviously the World Cup. Yeah, it's uh, it's been taking a lot of my time to watch the matches, so I haven't been reading as much as maybe I would have been ordinarily, or at least not browsing the social media platforms where I find out about niche research, which is in, in journals I don't <laughs> regularly look at. Uh, so, mm-hmm. yeah. But yeah, so um, England doing well in the football. You're obviously not watching it, but uh, we're through to the semi-finals since I think it was actually medieval knights that last um, succeeded in getting England to the semi-finals of the World Cup. So uh, we're doing quite well. Mm. But then they were better armed. They were better armed. And it was a different sport back then. <laughs> for, for totally different world, really. Yeah. Um, In many ways. I mean, lots of the countries didn't exist. You know, <laughs> the supercontinent Gondwana was a major player. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that Gondwana team. Yeah. Couldn't be beaten. No. They had really no opposition. <laughs> no, <we call. laughs> no um but anyway so uh yeah i as per usual in the term like news niche 
I don't know what you've been reading. You don't know what I've reading. So we did discuss before the episode. There is actually a slight risk that we've both read the same stuff. Kind of an opposite mm. situation to when we had the species of the bye week mess up, where with neither of oh, us. Don't you? You said not to bring that up again. Look, I can't. It weighs on my mind all the time. I'm ashamed. I've got to bring it up, otherwise I feel like <laughs> if we don't talk about it, they'll be talking about it. The proverbial they will be discussing us and calling us fools. <laughs> <laughs> But so your excuse is football, yeah, and field work. What's your excuse? My excuse is I've been reading large amounts of mammal papers. <laughs> That's disgusting. Yep, I've learned about leopards and tigers and Cecil the lion. Oh, you name it. If, it, if it's about a predator or persecuted species being persecuted and killed, I've have either read it or I've copied it down ready to be read well i mean that's fair enough i mean you are studying a persecuted animal that's exactly the point i see drawing the parallels between snakes and all other persecuted animals like eagle owls and all sorts because hmm. really the messages are pretty much the same and even the patterns are pretty much the same but i feel like maybe there aren't too many snake species that has been drawn attention to so that's what we're trying to build towards something like that Mm, cool, that's very interesting. Um, funnily mm. enough, I've been reading about mammals recently as well, much to my shame. Because <laughs> we're going to be doing we're going to be doing some trapping to try and look at mammal abundance in different places, um, as in prey species stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. Yeah, so I've got seventy five of these Longworth traps, which are crazy little contraptions. Um, yeah, I mean, if I were a mouse, I'd definitely fall for it. <laughs> It's not yeah, just if you cover them in peanut butter, they're doomed. Yeah, it's not just it's not even like it's just bait either. There's also like bedding material. It's basically like an Airbnb, <laughs> which is actually owned by the dude who runs the the film Saw. <laughs> oh my god! Like it's I have you now. Um, but yeah, just to clarify before I get like Peter knocking on the door, we're not actually going to hurt them. We are going to let them go. So it's just to see. Well, it's just seeing how many there are yeah and what they look and what they look like and what they feel like and how they you know how they are to stroke and that kind of stuff like nice stuff yeah whether they like poetry long walks on the beach yeah i mean hopefully hopefully like you say peanut butter will be the one i mean peanut butter and a bit of snickers bar if i was a small mammal i'd be all over that mate if i was a large greater eight mammal i'd be all over that yeah i mean i've seen you yeah no, I've seen you. And I think, oh, do you know, my only concern when I, when you bait a trap with peanut butter and a Snickers, yeah, for a small mammal, is they're going to spend the rest of their lives wondering if they'll ever taste that sweet nectar again. And they won't. Maybe. Uh, maybe. I was, I was thinking you were maybe worried about catching toddlers or something. <laughs> catching a toddler. <laughs> no. No, I don't. No, they're going to be overnight traps. So, I mean, hopefully there won't be any toddlers roaming around, snuffling around in the bushes <laughs> at night. <laughs> yeah, toddler, toddlers have a strict curfew. <laughs> yeah, they do. And thank goodness, otherwise you'd never get any research done. <laughs> oh, man. So, with that, I'm going to say enough beating about the bush. And shall <laughs> I start with the first paper I read? Yeah, go on. Yeah, let's do it. So... This is by Bush and uh, Simulov in 2018. A case for anal territoriality. So, you remember, uh, what was it, episode 
Annals. Yes. Was that what it was well, called? Or was that the name of the blog? No. That's the name of the blog. That's the name of the blog. Uh, what do we call it? Ours was an assortment of annals. Oh, that's for it. For Anulis. Yeah. The catchiest name relating to annals was already taken, so we set, we settled for that. <laughs> so, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. But basically, remember we, we read the uh, Carmarthen Losos, Losos paper about basically, hey, uh, female selection is playing a big role in the breeding of um, annals or anulis. Uh, wherever it was, uh, was it Florida? Was it the invasive population? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. Yeah, I think so. Ooh, not... But basically, yeah. Prior to that paper, they wrote a beefy review on territoriality in the lizards and sort of their their take on it, and basically pointing at some of the older research and being like, hmm, maybe this isn't actually as good a uh, evidence of territoriality as. It could be, and it's sort of old, and maybe as we talked about it in the episode, how it's sort of perpetuated into a not a law that's perhaps too strong a word, but a given way of conceptualizing how animals behave and what they're doing, right? It's, it's coming at it from this perspective of territoriality, mm. and they're basically saying, hmm, maybe that isn't the best way you should be coming at it, and starting. Basically, almost like you've got less knowledge, taking less for granted in terms of territoriality. And if you do that, you might find some more interesting behaviours or perhaps a greater understanding of the behaviours because you're looking at a bit more nuance as opposed to being rigidly stuck stuck in a territoriality and um, a male, uh, what do you call it? Polyg- polygony? Polyg- polyg- polygamous. Where the polygamous. males polygamous have multiple partners. Males. Yes, exactly. But of course, if you put something like that out into the world, where you've got a bunch of um, anonymous researchers, you're going to get a few that possibly don't agree. Mm-hmm. And the Bush and Smimilov one is a reply to that review. And their sort of, the gist of their argument basically is, okay, the evidence isn't as flimsy as you said it is, okay. And also that their definition of territoriality is way, way too strict. Where they're basically saying purely exclusive territories and very high site fidelity um, is, is super uncommon and it's not a fair way to assess territoriality. You're basically being too strict. That's why you're saying they're not territorial or territoriality doesn't matter as much because your definition's too strict. Mm, and it's so strict they're sort of saying, hey... If you apply that to many other species that are considered territorial as well, you wouldn't consider them territorial. Hmm. So that's one little sort of dig, I guess. Um, the other was sort of saying maybe the other part is missing out defensive behaviours as part of the definition. Where basically if you're having defensive behaviours, you've got to be defending something, it's got to be for a purpose and sort of validating that they are trying to exclude each other from areas. And we know that, like, so defensive behaviour and anolis lizards can be all sorts of stuff, from head bobs to the whole dewlap thing, chasing each other, biting each other, uh, dorsal, ventral flattening, all sorts of stuff, basically. And also colour variation and things that might 
help with those sorts of displays and build up that sort of uh, basically build up evidence for territoriality that way. Right. So were they suggesting that maybe these all of those behaviours weren't necessarily to do with territoriality? I think basic. well, as far as I take the Kamathan Lossos perspective is that while, yes, these are connected to territoriality, you should not be approaching these problems as these are territorial features and have it all feed into this already existing hypothesis of territoriality. You should come from it from a more uh, maybe neutral perspective and work with these behaviours to see if they're also influencing other stuff before jumping on the territoriality bandwagon and uh, seeing everything via that lens. Mm. It's quite cool. Yeah, no, it just re- it reminds me again of like the uh, the 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 um, the stuff we were talking about with um, polygamy of males or even um, monogamy. Remember, we were talking about the uh, monogamy mm. in birds, which everyone took to be, you know, pretty well a definite thing. Birds pair for life, and then it turned out they don't, and then or they do, but they're you know they're uh, they're cheating on each other a lot. All those deer that just kept on... They thought the males were in charge of the herd and then, as it turned out, females would just up and leave if they didn't like what was going on. And if you look at deer ecology and behaviour and the sphere of them having males with harems, but then actually it turns out that's not quite the case. It turns it all on its head and you kind of have to look at a lot of things from a different angle. It sounds like kind of a similar thing is going on here. I I think so. And and in the sort of classic way that these academic arguments sort of go they're almost making the same point by a different means because mm. at the end of the day everybody wants just hey if we just did more research we could probably work this stuff out yeah but i think exactly what you're saying if you the bush and symbolov thing was more decoupling or at least the way i read it um, was an idea to decouple mating success and territoriality a little bit more where territoriality exists and it's all these things um but I feel like the the come up and uh, come up and stuff was more coming via the behaviours mm. and see what's coming out of those behaviours and in their case detect or at least the paper we read detecting the female selection and the sort of more nuanced stuff going on where there was selection for you know bigger males but we also had potentially smaller males kept in close proximity and overlapping with larger males for the purposes of, of being able to outcompete them easily so the territoriality is not strictly enforced. Yeah. Um, so in that case, basically, the, the point is that a lot of these behaviours are a lot more nuanced than a traditional uh, paradigm of territoriality would suggest, and it might be doing these lizards a disservice to start from that and build from territoriality as opposed to examining the actual impacts of some of these behaviours without any assumptions. Yeah, because I could see that like <clears throat> successfully holding a territory is probably one of a suite of things which could be deemed to be uh, an attractive trait. Exactly. But then also... Um, the and fact... we saw encounter rate was, was important. Yeah, well, this is it. And timing like... of encounters and all sorts of stuff that would have been missed if you were just looking at the spatial overlap of yeah. individuals. And to me, because um, one of the sort of um, one of the hallmarks of a successful animal was encountering the most amount of females, right? Yes, exactly. And so that kind of is flying in the face of territoriality because 
I mean, either that suggests they're holding a massive territory, but actually it was the case that they themselves were traveling, which is kind of counter to the idea of territoriality where you stay in one place and guard what you've got going on. Yeah. But again, that comes back to the definitions where the reality seemed like there was a lot more flux. But if you're a little bit lighter on your definition of territoriality, then you can still call that territorial. Right. Because of defensive behavior, perhaps. Mm, Gotcha. Okay, cool. So that's interesting. It is. I mean, I've got... um, This is... Basically, there were a trio of papers about this that I, I read, so I can keep going if, you, if you're willing. Tell me more. <laughs> okay. So we had another response that was by um, Stamps. Same journal, behavior, uh, Behavioral Ecology and socio, Sociobiology. Uh, polyandrous Annals and the Myth of the Passive Female. Um, so this was a shorter one that I feel like was less of, less of a counter, I think, with come up and lost us in that it was more sort of in line with what they're saying but a slight tilt on it where they were basically saying hey okay perhaps the issue isn't with people assuming territoriality but it's assuming polygony as opposed to females having multiple partners which is what you were saying with the mammals and the birds where it's all been turned over recently with molecular stuff Mm. so they just sort of suggested that the criticism of the older studies was more misdirected than incorrect. Um, and there is certainly an interesting, probably, uh, what's the word? I was like, I guess history, historiography sort of perspective on this, and that perhaps the older stuff, being, you know, herpetology is already a ludicrously male-dominated. Um, yeah, yeah, subject. Exactly certainly, the further back you go, the worse it gets. And one of the reasons that, sort of, maybe in the subtext of what they were writing, I don't know, it might have just been me reading too much into it, um, was that having a traditional view of females as a resource might have coloured the hypothesis, hypotheses being tested, and the way the whole situation was uh, built. Basically, the sort of ne- the the biases of the time helped perpetuate an idea of a passive female. Sounds about right. Sounds exactly like what would happen. We talked about this on the podcast before, where if you keep yeah. saying the same thing, you lose sight of who said it first, and it's just embedded in your mind yeah. as a fact. And, it, and uh, exactly, and it just becomes background. Yeah, ceases to be questioned. Yeah, once it's in a textbook, it's game over. Very interesting, very interesting perspective. Like, I absolutely believe that that could be the case that, you know, some some of the old boys of herpetology were just like, oh, you know, look at all the, look at the males with their harems and, you know, failed to even consider. I mean, perhaps it's the case that mating systems, that level of complexity just weren't, you know, they just weren't in our sphere of, I mean, that could well be. They might have not have been very easy to easy to study. That's exactly one of the issues is now that with the molecular methods you've almost got no excuse for investigating paternity of individuals and actually working out the connections between individuals in a population. Yeah. I, mean, I suppose the excuse is funding, uh, technical expertise, uh, laboratory resources, uh, time, uh, people actually do it. But yeah. In but at least, of, <laughs> at least you know, ignorance is no longer an excuse. <laughs> Yes. Oh, oh, that's really cool. So, um, so just to sorry, take on. I was just going to round off 
because there's a Kamath and Lossos reply to both of those. <laughs> Ooh, reconsidering geez. territoriality is necessary for understanding anolis mating systems, which basically sums up what I was half saying with how they reply to some of this stuff anyway. But the whole point comes back to territoriality was used as a method of inferring the mating system of these lizards. That is no longer needed because we have molecular methods which provide far more detail and potentially are far more flexible. So if you don't need to come from a territorial perspective to work out the mating structure, that opens you up to a whole new way of looking at how these lizards are interacting with each other. Yeah, you can actually trace it back from maternity and paternity to behavior rather than going behavior and inferring it the other way. It's like, yeah, there's genius. And potentially missing behavior too. Like missing females having multiple mates, but it was female selection that was driving that. Mm. So what, what, just so everyone's on the same page, what you mean when you talk about molecular method is actually looking at the genes of these individual animals, comparing it to the genes of adults in the population and then, then inferring via similarities who gave birth or fathered who. Or in the case of yeah, animals, it's basically the getting all the, the big population of lizards and sticking them on the Jeremy Kyle show and having them all do DNA tests. Or for our American listeners, what was the one? Um, oh, what was her name? Ricky Lake? Was Ricky Lake a thing? Or what was the other? What was the what was the guy? The guy who did them? Oh God, Jerry Jerry Springer. Was it Springer? Jerry oh, Springer. So what, am I? Did I make a bad reference, a wrong reference? No, you just referenced it like a, a UK version, which I got and I appreciate. Oh. But I think to our oh. to our sort of more distant, disparate listeners, Jerry Springer will, will conjure more of an immediate image than Jeremy Kyle, who, um, yeah, Jeremy Kyle. Wow, I could go on a rant about that guy, but I won't. <laughs> <laughs> uh. What a dick. <laughs> stupid stupid daytime tv references aside yeah basically that finishes up with um basically saying the stamps suggestion of hey we need to look at these things at the same time with spatially explicit models that are also looking at paternity and relatedness and that's essentially the paper that was done later which is the one we read on episode 26 um which did encounter rate and body size and all sorts of covariates to show that territory territory was not perhaps the most important thing. Yes, it played a role. Of course it's going to play a role because that's where these lizards are. But you could do a better job by looking at other stuff. Well, certainly there's, they found enough cool stuff in that paper to warrant it being done again. And when in you, other places with other species. And when you say do a better job, you mean better elucidate the reasons behind female mate selection. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and actually being able to show female mates, uh, yeah. mate selection. Mm. Like, you've got to remember that that was just not a massive thing in before. I, I mean, I guess I haven't read all the anonymous stuff back there, but the way Kamath and Losas are playing it, and with these responses, it sounds like it's one of the first times it's really been shown so conclusively perhaps Mm. i I mean i bet you there were there were suggestions prior there were always suggestions but hard data backing it up might have been a little bit rarer yeah cool and also going by the fact that it was in a pretty high impact journal what was it proceedings of the royal society or something wasn't it yeah 
uh, yeah, were you talking about the original one that we looked at? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was. Um, uh, yeah, proceedings B, proc B. Yeah. So yeah, so... big hitter. Well, it's interesting that you bring up. It's good. Annals are just a gift that keep on giving, aren't they? Really. Um, Mate, the research on them is stunning. Yeah, it's interesting. And it keeps growing, but yeah, always interesting. <laughs> The, you bring up sort of um, mating, well, female mate selection, and um, I read a paper which is kind of well, it's kind, of, it, it's obviously it's to do with sexual selection, but um, it was pretty brutal and it flashed up on my newsfeed and I was like, what is this? And it was actually a really, really, really unpleasant read, but I thought it'd be kind of interesting to talk about on the podcast. And um, it's by uh, Golobovich et al. Uh, it's from this year, twenty eighteen. And it's entitled, Is Sexual Brutality Maladaptive Under High Population Density? Uh, yeah, it was pretty deep. Um, but, you know, I think it's important that people understand tortoises because my opinion of tortoises <laughs> was that, you know, they were these It had little... to be tortoises. Yeah. It had to be. Yeah, it's about tortoises. I saw one today. I saw one that you was saw the size one? of my phone. Yep. Oh. Driving up the road back to the station. It was the size of an iPhone 5S. Oh. No, an iPhone 5. I too Tiny. have that iPhone. I can see it here. Was it? Was yeah. it, what is it? Is it literally that size? Is it the elongated tortoise? Yeah. Yes. Oh. Uh, uh, Indo Indo Testuda. Elongata, right? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Are there still people studying them in the station? Yes. Oh. We covered one of the papers that came out of it. We did. Last news yeah, with did. the drowned, uh, the drowned tortoise. So did that? Is that tortoise part of science now? Uh, we took some photos of it. Yes. <laughs> good, 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 good. Um, awesome. That's banging. I, I, and helped it cross the road, of course. Oh yeah, because they are useless at that, and they're also useless at, at, at being good citizens, as this paper is about to elucidate <laughs> for us. Because so this isn't the elongated tortoise. This is the Herman's tortoise I'm about to talk about. Testudo. Testudo Herman. So really, Herman should be blamed for all this. Sorry? Herman should be blamed for all this. Herman was one sick puppy. Um, <laughs> no, it's like, I don't know, it's kind of weird when you're discussing um, mating systems, which are brutal, because uh, part of the thing I like to do, and that helps me find things interesting, and it's certainly something we do on this podcast, is to like make animal behaviours kind of relatable. But if these behaviors are just oh, abhorrent that's not so it's like yeah. it's just not good to yeah so anyway um the testudo hermini is a widespread european tortoise um there are loads of them as pets in captivity people have them in the uk they get to be about seven inches long um and the males are quite famous a lot of people have seen the youtube videos where they when they're copulating they make this really high-pitched squeak and they open their mouths and they look really stupid um it's kind of weird to see that um but they're an endangered species, and so understanding their reproductive behaviour is obviously of kind of utmost importance if you're going to hope to sort of see them in the future, conservation-wise. Um, mm. But yeah, so the males, basically their mating system is pretty unsavoury. The males just harass females relentlessly until they kind of just give up, and the harassing can be like butting, biting, um, and then eventually they kind of force copulation. And it's pretty unpleasant, but the... What these people who were studying these tortoises in Macedonia noticed, so um, for those that don't know, Macedonia, the Republic of Macedonia is 
Um, a country in the Republic of North Macedonia, is it... as of a few months ago. Oh, is it? Oh, wow. Okay, so yeah. the Republic of North Macedonia. So, what's the southern bit called now? Well, basically, um, I don't think Greece didn't like them being called Republic of Macedonia because there's a dis- there's a region in Greece called Macedonia, and it was a sort of uh, I think there was sort of territorial sovereignty, sort of butting of heads over it. And I think, if I remember correctly, it is now Republic of North, the Republic of North Macedonia to sort of ease those tensions right. after, I don't know, a good number of years. Okay, well, uh, well, far be it from me to increase tensions, although I would like to show solidarity with the people of Macedonia. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to call it the Republic of North Macedonia. Uh, so yeah, anyway, it's a country in Southeast Europe. Um, it's part of the Balkan Peninsula, which is like, as you say, it pokes down just east of Greece. So we're like, you know, just just a little bit landward of the Mediterranean. Um, hmm. And anyway, yeah, these Hermes tortoises, they were looking at two different populations. One was on a little island and one was on uh, the mainland. And what they noticed, the mainland area was called Konsko and the island is called Golemgrad Island. And uh, on the island of Golemgrad, um, there were much higher density of males. So there was one female to 17 males. And they also had loads of tortoises. The tortoises were really abundant. There were 67 what? per hectare. What? Sorry, it's one... What sort of population balance is that? 17 to 1? 17 males to one female. Yeah, man, it's crazy. Like, it doesn't what make earth any is sense. What that? Well... Is that a survival thing? Well... It could be due to what I'm about to tell you about. So oh, okay. um, there's another population on the mainland and they have more or less equal ratio of males to females. I think it's like 47% male, 53% female. So there's many, you know, and these are little tortoises, like I said, seven inches long, um, you know, maybe a 15 centimeter tortoise. Yeah, they sort of look like a, I've used this joke before, but they're just like a little rock and then with legs. Um, and basically... The oh yeah, and another thing to mention the the population which had one to one ratio also has a much lower density of twenty per hectare. Um, so on the island, basically, there's loads and loads of males crammed together with the odd female on on the that's on the island, and on the mainland, there's like a much more sensible ratio. And um, what they were looking at was the males because they have this coercive mating strategy, they have a tendency to be quite savage, and that is seemingly exacerbated when there's 17 males to one female. So what they found was that um, in the good density and the sort of reasonably balanced um, operational sex ratio of one to one at Consco, only 25% of females exhibited cloacal injuries. So like their opening was injured because the male's tail is like stabbing it. Whereas under the really high density and quite obviously strongly biased um, sex ratio where there's loads of males and very few females. A lot more of the females were actually wounded. It was 75% and often it was severely. Um, And also something else the males on the high density male island were doing was they were trying to mate with immature females and they were like severely damaging them as well. Um, Mm. So basically you've got this island of of hell um, with just all this horrible stuff going on. And um, what they found was that because the females were being injured so badly, it was actually kind of reducing their chances of survival. And yeah. and um, 
Yeah, there was actually no benefit to the males doing this, and they didn't really have any clear conclusions about what was actually going on. But it kind of draws the suggestion that somewhere along the line, the population of males has got really high compared to females, and it's led to all this, like, because there's not enough females to spread out the males' kind of, like, sexual aggression, it's causing, like, a massively damaged population. Um, Yeah. Which in itself has kind of interesting implications because... Obviously, these tortoises have evolved um, and this coercive strategy evolutionarily works for them. But you wonder, once it gets to a point where the males outnumber the females, are the males doing that much damage that eventually their population is going to have to have some kind of crash to bring it back to a a more reasonable ratio? Yeah. Um, Sounds like an ecological sort of trap that they've they've ended up in. Yeah. And Um, what's really interesting, what is, yeah, what is pushed it to that point well this is it and are tortoise eggs uh, are they um does temperature affect sex of tortoises it actually does yeah i believe it does pretty sure i know it does for turtles yeah because i mean thinking sort of grander picture conservation wise if you're heading towards a climate as things warm and potentially dry in certain areas like the mediterranean is that going to shift the sex bias further one way and harm these uh, tortoises because of that it could well be the case that that is something that's happening yeah um which is i mean that would be extremely negative because they found that with sea turtles didn't they that um climate change is influencing their sex determination and it's becoming yes. it's becoming a little bit biased yeah and i suppose depending on which way it goes it could have Oh, short-term benefits or long-term detriment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, the costs when you think about it as well, because females that are being harassed like this, they're not managing to eat properly because they're obviously just trying to evade an angry male. And so, yeah, it's just, yeah, it could well be. But like I say, in um, in the actual paper, they don't sort of come to any real conclusions as to why this has kind of got so out of hand. Um, and that's kind of the next question on. Yeah, I don't know how you'd work that out. Because, I mean, that that's, that's something that's clearly already happened and probably happened a while ago. Yeah. And so they kind of, they, they describe this behaviour as maladaptive, which seems to be they're probably right. Um, unless there's, yeah. Yeah. Unless, of course, what you're looking at there is a, like, tracked population which has been forced into high density. I don't know how the island was formed or whatever, but you could envision a sort of scenario where you've got a population of tortoises that gets split in half, and one half is getting shrunk down to a smaller and smaller area year on year on year, and basically the the male bias has come across because of the aggressive mating, and just left after enough time, it gets to a state where it just seems completely untenable. Yeah. But it was forced into being by range restriction or, or yeah basically the high uh, the high density and that's just it's just sort of they, they just can't occupy that small an area yeah yeah in that sort of way yeah well i mean it could well be that this is a population which is like destined for decline but even then i mean it's kind of interesting in <clears throat> if nothing else this uh this paper might come in handy one day down the line when Hammond's tortoises are in real trouble um <laughs> Don't let loads of males and mm. just one female go because you'll end up with chaos. 
and horror, really, just horrible things going on. Yeah, just pure horror. Yeah, but yeah, not very nice subject, and I wasn't sure whether to bring it up, but um, I think it's interesting to read about these kind of, you know, nature doesn't always get it right. Sometimes well, situations and, arise which are maladaptive. You know, as you segued from it, from the mating of um, anolis lizards, it's critical to understand the behaviour associated with mating success if you want to be looking at how viable populations are. Yeah. So there's one thing just counting tortoises. Oh, look, there's a whole bunch of tortoises. But if you didn't know that 80% of those were male and the implication of that, yeah. then that population can go from like, oh, yeah, there's loads of tortoises too. Oh, no, there's a crazy male-dominated population of tortoises. It's doomed. Yeah. yeah. So that's, uh, that's a pretty big thing. Yeah, well, yeah, there was another paper by... Um... Le Galliard et al. in 2005, and they looked at um, they looked at um, common lizards, and uh, they found that when there was an excess of adult males, um, mortality and emigration didn't increase. So although the males were sort of more abundant, they didn't die or go anywhere. They just carried on living out their lives, and uh, it meant that there was more sexual aggression towards females. Which then yeah. led to more females dying, and then you know it, it was this horrible feedback loop, self-perpetuating cycle. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Which ended in sort of a risk of population extinction. Which, as you said, you called you called it a trap, didn't you? They call it an evolutionary trap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Weird, weird stuff. Not something I'd um, come across before. No, don't seem to talk very often about tortoises on the podcast, but uh, they're interesting beasts. Yeah, they are. I give them a lot of slack because um, I don't know. I do, I do like them though. They do it. That I like them. They don't fascinate me. I would say you know snakes, lizards, frogs fascinate me. Tortoises amuse me. <laughs> <laughs> they are fine trinkets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, they're okay. I'm only joking, really. But yeah. So that was my um, horrible paper about violent sexual tortoises. Mm. Lock them all up, I say. Yeah, just bin them. Just bin them. I mean, those shells are pretty <laughs> handsome. We must be able to do something useful with those. <laughs> Turn them into uh, crash helmets for small children. Ah, yes, yes. Yeah. Or turn it upside down. You've got a little bowl. Yeah. With a lid. Little bowl. Little or a flower pot. Lid, yeah. Not that you'd need the lid for a flower pot. No. No. Um, so, what else is new? Did you hear about the IUCN Red List update? Yes, I did. What did you think? Um, I'll be frank. I heard about it. I didn't go in... I, I didn't dig too much deeper. I heard that it was a lot of... Um, uh, was it Salvador's monitor lizard? No. Uh, someone else's monitor lizard in Australia was jumped up to endangered. And basically, there's a lot of Australian stuff that has been elevated. Yeah. Because of, um, well, amongst other things, uh, habitat destruction and stuff. Don't mention toads. The mighty, <laughs> the mighty, ever adaptable, constantly spreading, soon to be overlord of the world, cane toad. I th- we gave you a whole episode on toads, and this is how you repay me. I thought you'd be happy that I'm talking more about toads. You yeah, loved it. I did like it. So, uh, yeah, 7% of <laughs> and all... And to be fair, we were talking about Dutta We were. In that episode. More than 
old vanilla mariners. I'm just going to come out and say it, Ben. They're more or less the same animal. (laughs) They could be. They could be mistaken for each other, but they're definitely not the same. No. Um, but yeah, like you say, 7% of Australia's reptiles are threatened with extinction now, which is brutal. Um, some other news. I mean, this is a new update. It came out on the 5th, which was last Thursday. Yeah. Um, sorry, I, I know you don't like to put the podcast in like a temporal context, but I've done it now. Uh, Mauritius also did something really foolish. They had some problems with these fruit bats because they kept on eating fruit. Um Bloody fruit bats coming over here, eating our fruit. What are they like? I know, ridiculous. With their wings. I and it and so what they did was they decided to try and kill those of the fruit bats and um <laughs> and yeah that that always solves all the problems. It's just if if something's causing a problem, just try and wipe them out or just give it more. There's never fruit bats. any negative repercussions. <laughs> anyway, they did that. Um, it didn't necessarily work that well, especially not for the fruit what? bats, because the fruit <laughs> bats became endangered. Um, <laughs> but then, oh, oh, yeah, dear. I think now, though, they they have <laughs> Mauritian government stepped in and were like, OK, this is daft. Um, you're not to kill fruit bats anymore. Um, and that would happen in 2016. So since then, I think things are looking a bit less bleak. And um the bat is also, I mean, being a fruit bat, it's a really important pollinator because big fruits um, and sometimes fruits which are kind of quite chewy or have a thick skin, not that many animals can actually disperse their seeds with success. Like guava. Strawberry guava. Yeah. I mean, I can't outsmart some... a guava. Yeah, the bats love it in Madagascar, apparently. Oh, really? Yeah. It's the, they. Why was I reading about bats? But I was. I was reading about bats, and apparently they... they Strawberry guavas introduced to Madagascar, um, but the bats—they love it. We've talked they about this on the podcast it. before, did we? Mm, yeah, we did. About bats eating strawberry guava. Yeah, because weren't you saying something along the lines of like certain lemurs, like the more crafty lemurs, have worked out that it's also delicious? Yeah, yeah. So it's oh yeah, I was I was doing it. Some like sometimes introduced species can actually benefit some species in some ways. I just started, I think that was the tact I, I was taking. Yeah, I just started screaming and saying you were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Stop talking about mammals. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So beyond that, um, some bad news: the precious stream toad, which is Ansonia smeagol, which is interesting because it's named after the Lord of the Rings character Smeagol, who I believe is the one who has an obsession with some kind of trinket, um, perhaps a tortoise <laughs> shell. I can't recall. Uh, but yeah, that one's now vulnerable, um, which is. Brutal. It's from Peninsula Malaysia, uh, and actually, tourist resorts are what's smashing their habitat up. Um, mm. So that's not fun. But there was some better news. Um, obviously, yes. despite high levels of amphibian threats globally, high levels of threats. That's a sentence. Uh, there's also good news yeah, from amphibians. The threat level is high. Yeah, that's a that's a perfectly okay sentence, isn't it? High threat. <laughs> Um, total alert high total alert yeah frog danger incoming so big frog danger yeah all the football um (laughs) (laughs) so the the four species were which have previously been considered critically endangered and even possibly extinct or extinct were rediscovered in colombia and ecuador and they are the Mm. rio pescado stubfoot toad uh the quito stubfoot toad and atelopus nane which were all thought to have disappeared due to the effects of chytridiomycosis. Um, yep. 
I realise it says, I said four, but I only have three here written down, so one of them will remain nameless, but rest assured, it's back in, <laughs> back in science. Uh, See, you got, you gave me stick for bringing up a toad, you just brought up, like, two in a row. Mate, you want to talk about toads, yeah? Stubfoot toad, Whoa. the Rio Pescado tub, stubfoot toad, Atalopus balios, is awesome, seriously cool toad. Of all the toads which aren't extinct, it's the one that makes me happiest because it just looks super cool. It's got a really like characterful face, big eyebrows, yeah. um, greeny white body and some yellow on it with these like long black spotty blotches. Do you remember when we got a bit obsessed with those clown frogs at one stage? Um, this <laughs> is this, but in total. Yeah, it's like that, but stretched out a bit toady. Oh, uh, very excellent. good. I think you should Google it, actually. We need an honest reaction. It's called Atalopus balios. Um, I'll keep talking. You find that. So it's spelled like eight lopus balios. Oh, I got it. Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. That is beautiful. Some of them are yellow. Some of them are like pale blue. Yeah. Some of them are orange. Yeah. With, and some of them are green. Oh, holy smokes. That is a charismatic toad. I know, right? Aren't you glad they're not extinct? Classic uh, Atalopus shape with a pointy face. Oh, they're wonderful. And also, I've realised, I have got written down which the other fourth species was that's no longer extinct, which is the Karchi Andes toad, Rabo columi. Um, it's not gone. It's been impacted by habitat loss, but it's not yet gone. And if you want to read more about the Red List, uh, we'll put a link in the show notes and you can look at it up and read it. If you feel like feeling... Well, there's some good news in there, which I like how they do that. Cause... Yeah, it, 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 it's not all bad news this time. It's just... Yeah. So, what else have you got? What else is going on in the world of herpetology? Um, I only have one other thing, and I'm afraid to say that it's not a particularly new thing. Um, oh, well, which I, I know completely contra- contravenes the purpose of well, the It's important I should mention that that frog thing was actually found out in 2010 but obviously it hasn't been an update since so that wasn't particularly new news either. <laughs> okay well at least it's slightly newer than that. I just wanted to draw attention to a Yanez Aranas 2014 paper. Uh, the use of ecological niche modelling to infer potential risk areas of snake bite in the Mexican state of Veracruz which was published in Plus One. So, snake bites, big problem. Bigger problem than toads, probably. Uh, you're looking at anywhere from 20,000 to 94,000 deaths from snake bites a year, and possibly as many as 1.8 million bites every year, which result in an absurd amount of morbidity and just an unbelievable uh, burden on um, parts of the world. So wouldn't it be cool if you could take a whole bunch of publicly available biodiversity information, say from the GBIF database, uh, use some pretty fancy modelling techniques to show where these snakes are like and what's their sort of niche and where they're going to be in higher abundance perhaps, and cross-reference that to areas that have high snake bite and see if you can predict, just by a bunch of occurrence data, areas that may need greater attention from medical services and WHO and various other places 
for Snakebite and dealing with Snakebite. If you told me you could do that, I would say, put away your crystal ball, spaceman. Whoa, space boy, get back on your rocket. But no, <laughs> it's real. Or at least it's, it, it works for some. It doesn't work for everything. Um, one of the biggest problems is that Snakebite data is one of the most notoriously patchy and subject to all sorts of various and horrible biases because you're trying to get data from some of the poorest regions in the world with bad hospital records or lack of hospitals or people not going to hospitals or can't get to hospitals, so on and so forth. Yeah. And then, and you know, high mortality as well. People don't survive to tell anyone. Yep. And also Snake ID is a big problem because let's say you're in a place that has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven types of Crotalus Viper alone. <sighs> That's quite a big ask for people to ID a snake like that beyond the genus. And even the genus sometimes can be a bit of a tall order. Yeah. And so many venomous snakes have mimics as well. Well, that too. Yeah. Um, so basically I'll cut through a lot of the methods and stuff and basically say, Get your occurrence data, apply uh, like climatic variables, elevation variables, possibly land use, but I don't think they had land use. That's one of the drawbacks and see what that shows. And also grab all your hospital data and compare it with some covariates with the hospital data, say population density, percentage of people working in agriculture, wealth of a region, that sort of stuff. And basically what they showed was for Bothrops, Asper and Protalus simus, there was a pretty damn good correlation between areas where they predicted there'd be in high abundance with a good ecological niche match to what they, you know, what these species prefer, and the actual snake bite burden in those areas. Cool. Which was downright awesome. Um, the sort of downside of that was that they did test nine species and only those two did it work really well for. Um, but that being said, just looking at the distribution maps, they do appear to be the species that had the most number of occurrences in the Veracruz area. So it might not be a situation where the methods aren't uh, worth pursuing. Just need more records. Because it didn't work you might just need better occurrence data, which is something which I am coming up against myself out in Southeast Asia because occurrence data is just hard to get for species with such low detection. So, hey, this is a really cool paper and shows some really pretty awesome potential as far as I'm concerned in terms of turning occurrence data into something actionable that can actually help deal with this the snake bite crisis mm, that's really cool and i always see it as a flip side if you can solve snake bite you can solve a lot of snake persecution yeah certainly that's the tack i take with it is that that solving that will solve more than just the snake bite problem yeah well but they had a few sort of yeah sorry i was just going to say if anyone's looking to improve their um records in terms of what species are found in a place um I'm available on contract and I can find one snake every 10 hours. If you could come out here and find me what a venomous 
Oh yeah, just just do a tour of Thailand, um, picking out any venomous species and being like, "Yep, yeah, that's here." Would be helpful. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what was I going to say? I was going to say basically they gave a bunch of reasons why it may not be working as perfectly for some species, and I think one of the biggest ones that they, or at least one that I agree with them the most strongly with, is probably land use, as in the habitats actually available in areas. Because climate only goes so far to explaining a species distribution because the how snakes interact with disturbed habitat changes dramatically from one species to the next. Yeah. And also, we don't know much about how long a species can persist after a big disturbance either. Exactly. There's a lot of stuff going into basically how much development and agriculture can these species take and even how they use different land uses will expose them to different levels of human contact and therefore snake bite. Yeah. So that's probably a big thing. Add in to that the sort of behavior, which I was just sort of touching on there, just general behavior, activity levels, activity periods, whether they're arboreal or uh, fossorial, aquatic, whatever they're, wherever they're living, that's going to make a big deal as well. Because a snake up in the middle of the trees is going to have a far less chance of biting people than, say, some sort of ground-dwelling brown viper, right? Yeah. Makes makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But point is, a lot of scope, a lot of interesting... You know, the, the fact that it did work for two species is a fantastic sign. And uh, when you look at the sort of numbers of occurrence records, the ones that it did work for, Bothrop's Asper, they had 273 locations. But for Crotalis simus, they only had 53. Oh, that's quite good. Yeah, so provided they're a good representation of the niche, you might actually be able to do this with quite limited data. And there is a lot of literature on getting decent uh, niche estimates on relatively limited sample sizes of locations, provided they're not all just in one area. Yeah. But super cool paper. Um, I love it because it connects that sort of on-the-ground field research with the occurrence data. Quite awesome a sort of big data approaches with its GBIF and sort of bioclime uh, data sets that are all publicly available and open access and fantastic. And then the final bit is tying in a sort of very human conservation aspect into a sort of snake conservation aspect to hopefully drive towards a, a solution for solving both problems. Maze. I love that. It sort of it's a triple threat. Everything. Yeah. yeah. From beginning to end, you see all the little aspects that are important in snake herpetology sort of study. Mm. Or at least, I think so. So, from one triple threat, We've got a... What goes after four? Uh, quin. Quintuple threat. Yeah. Would it be quadruple? Quintuple. Quintuple. Quintuple threat. Um, we got a quintuple threat for our species of the bi-week, haven't we? Oh, my species of the bi-week. The speciesers. Uh, shall I read the paper? Genus of the bi-week? It, it, well, it's not even one genus, is it? It's like the, it's not even one genus. The clade of the it's week. Two genus, <laughs> Yeah. My days. 
Um, yeah, go for it. So this one's by Artega, Salazar, Valenzuela, Mebert, Penafiel, Agua, Sanchez, Nivicella, uh, a few others who uh, my referencing tool has elected to omit, and I'm sorry. And finally, Venegas. And this was published in 2018. And it's called Systematics of South American Snail-Eating Snakes, Serpentes Dipsadini, with the description of five new species from Ecuador and Peru. Published in Zookeys. Yeah. So, uh, snail-eating snakes. Yeah. This one got a lot they, of... Pub- they this, eat snails. They, well, they do. They also eat slugs, the little devils. Um, yeah, I thought... Yeah. They, they take out the... What are they? Mollusks? Yeah. Yeah. They're... um. Mollusk munchers. Molluscivores. Or, or, or that for the technical term. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I misspoke. So before we get onto these snakes, um, the people who've never seen, we've talked about it on the podcast before, a snail-eating snake, eat a snail, is just a crazy thing to behold. Um, they essentially wait for the snail to poke out of its shell, and then they grab it, and then they poke their lower jaw in the shell. The teeth of the lower jaw are really long, and so they like hook into the snail. And then it, they kind of like use those long hooked-in teeth, and by alternately putting one half of their lower jaw in and pulling the other half out, they end up kind of just like tugging the snail out of its shell. Um, the only thing can I... I can liken it to, go on. No, sorry, fin- fin- finish, your, finish your strange metaphor. The only thing I can liken it to is eating a snail. Ah, okay. <laughs> I almost regret letting you finish. Um, <laughs> Harsh. There's, so, there's something that I, I was meaning to bring up like at some point in previous episodes, but didn't get a chance. It's also a 2010 paper, so I sort of left it behind. In 2010, uh, Hoso, I guess, um in Nature Communications, show a a sort of adaptive um, solution. If you're a snail and you're getting eaten by these these snail-eating snakes, what you can do is flip the way that your snail shell um, curls in on itself. And that helps reduce the chances of these uh, snail-eating snakes being able to eat you. We need to get this material out to the snails, like, quick. <laughs> well, not too quick, because then the slugs will take a massive hit, because they're the only thing they can eat. Oh, yeah. Mm. But slugs are, like, 100% less charismatic than snails. Mm. Yes. Um, that's interesting. So, there's kind of... Obviously, I mean, there would be an evolutionary arms race. You don't just wake up one day and have... A crazy jaw with yes. super long lower teeth on your mandible, you know. Exactly, and a slightly sort of asymmetric jaw setup, yeah. which is what's critical. Having the having the snails flip the way they they're going. Um, I haven't read the paper in massive detail, but it is out there and it is pretty cool. Yeah, well, I was getting most of my information about how they do it from a paper by Sazima in 1989, which has just got loads of cool photos of this one species, Dipsus indica, which is a relative of some of the new species we're about to talk about. Um, yes. Right. Uh, but yeah, enough about, you know, that's what they do. They eat snails and slugs. 
Um, and this story got a lot of coverage. Uh, essentially, there's a guy called Alejandro Artega, who's a PhD student at the American Museum of Natural History and scientific director of Tropical Herping, um, partnered with Dr. Alex Pyron, who is a well-known, um, well, does loads of phylogenetic-y type stuff, um, from George Washington University, and they went to Ecuador a bunch of times between 2013 and 2017, and they discovered these three species. Uh, but there's five, yes. there's five species total. So there's five species. The other two came from other places. Three are discovered, two are redescriptions, or, or splits or something, aren't they? Ah, uh, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so yeah, they decided to name these after people. Um, controversial topic on the podcast... Um, well, it's not controversial. We just think it's wrong. Yeah, we don't like it. But in this case, I don't know. It's kind of <laughs> torn um, because essentially, yeah. one was named for Doctor Robert Bob Ridgely, uh, and one for George Jet Beverly, Doctor Beverly Ridgely, uh, who was the father of Doctor Bob Ridgely. And you know, these people have all had roles in conservation um, of. Species. Oh yeah, that is not to undermine the the. the people that they're actually named after at all no it's more i just species named after people i'm not no a fan of. and if i was um studying slug snakes and snailing snakes i'd be like oh what memorable characteristics does this have which pertain to its scientific name so i can remember it easily <laughs> in the field and recognize it immediately oh yeah it's called bob ridgely <laughs> yeah but you know it was a nice it was certainly a nice gesture for them to do this and um yeah without these individuals working towards the conservation of these species they probably wouldn't actually have a chance to exist so you know you gotta you gotta take you gotta take it where you can um yes so i mean the first species they describe is um sibon beveridgelii which is a really cool looking snake um there's a lot of photos in this paper there is a beautiful amount of yeah. photos. um so this is the snake shown on page uh well at the top of the corner it says 113 um which is very nice. It's got some... <laughs> oh, I can see it now. Yeah, it's got like... The very nice snake. Yeah, it's sort of... I don't even know what the background colour is. It's sort of like got brown bits, it's got yellow bits, it's got black bits, it's got grey bits. Oh, there it is. Yeah. And it's got a nice little oh, blue eye. Or maybe that's a grey eye. I don't know. But it's a nice snake with the characteristics. Slugging snakes have these big blunt heads. Um... And um, elli- elliptical people. They're cute looking, really. They are. They're sort of comical. They'll be a quizzical look. Um, so, yeah, that's a new one to science. It's named after um, Bev Ridgelii. And, um, yeah, it's... Well, they know a bit about the natural history. It hangs out at face height or a bit higher in bushes and trees. And when you put them in a box with a snail, they will eat the snail. Mm. Um, and they like streams. Yeah, they like streams, but I mean, who doesn't? Well, that's what I was going to say with the snails. I mean, you put me in a box of a snail, there's only one of us is going to come out of that fed. I wouldn't muck about with the whole, like, hooking the jaw, though. I'd just crunch it up. <laughs> <laughs> like a big, slimy what's it? Yeah, and then I'd make, like, a noise, like, and I'd spit out the shell. <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh, I could, oh it's, it's such a beautiful image. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the next one was Dipsas Bob Ridgelii. Um, 
So this was the one on page 98 for anyone who's reading along. (laughs) Really, if you are reading along, you should discard... What was the previous number you gave? Was it 113? Because there's another one of... um, Okay, that... I feel like you did a disservice to how good this snake looks. Because there's other It looks like it's crawling through, um, like, gold flake. It's like a brown snake that's crawled over a bunch of gold leaf and it's all stuck to its belly and flicked up its sides. It's absolutely stunning. It's not bad. It's like copper brown. (laughs) Yeah, it's nice. Maybe you've done it more justice there. Um, Yeah, it looks metallic. Well, I didn't want to overemphasize how much I like that one because I actually prefer some of the later ones. So I didn't want to lose my, like, impact by using too many, like, superlative kind of adjectives, you know. Oh, well... Yeah, I get you. But, you know, it's fine, because now... But it's blooming stunning. Yeah, it's a nice-looking snake. So then the next one was Bob Ridgely Eye, Dipsas, Bob Ridgely Eye, um, Bob Ridgely's Snailing Snake, and that one is on page 98. Uh, or 115, if you want a better picture. Oh, is that the big up, the big photo? Yeah, yeah, the half-page photo. Yeah, I mean, this is a cool snake. It's, like, got a black background mm. with white bands, like a crate, um... Yes. Like a banded crate, and then with like orange, like watercolory looking orangey bits in the middle of the orange of the middle of the white bands. So, but going gradually more red towards the tail. Yeah, and bright red eyes, and like a little bit of splashes of orange on the head. Really cool looking snake. Yeah. Um. Again, like this big blunt head, big eyes. Um. Yeah, just cool creature. This one. Again, it sort of hangs around bushes of an evening. Uh, <laughs> bushes? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, the ecological niche that is the bush dweller. <laughs> uh, the SVL, I mean, they're what, like 35, 37 centimetres uh, long? SVL, I have got written down as 372, 372 millilitres for the type, I believe. And a big old tail of 158 millimetres. So the tail is nearly half as long as the body. Um, which demonstrates very nicely that it was an entirely arboreal existence, or mostly arboreal. Mm, and this yes. this one was from the Ecuadorian Andes, uh, and they said this one should be endangered because it's only known from four patches of forest, um, and it's really fragmented, and there's only two areas protected, which is sad. But now it's known to exist, and it's been described and given a proper name, and that is why these stuff why a lot of these studies are done to begin with is to quantify just what's out there so you know what needs to be protected. Yeah, and... So it's taken one very valuable step towards being safe. Yeah, and um, as we'll talk about in a minute, this, you know, the authors of this are working in conjunction and that's why these people are being named is because they're actually working for conservation. So it's really cool. Yeah. Um, And so the next one, we're on number... We're on number three now? Yeah, so halfway. Yes. Dipsas George Jetty, um, named for George Jet, who has donated lots of money to the Rainforest Trust and supported the reserves in Ecuador. Um, so, I mean, that's a lovely thing. I'd love to have one of these snakes named after me. This one looks a bit like a corn snake or a fox snake. It's got those kind that's, of like bands. In my notes, I have written kind of like a corn snake. Have you really? I've got, reminds me that of a corn exactly snake. That's exactly what I've put. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so like... Light and chocolate brown striped dark head markings. Yeah, creamy beige background. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's like a corn snake, but on a slug snake's body. Um, yes. Yeah, this one... 
Very nice snake again. Again from uh, Ecuador. And then number four was Dipsas Oswaldo Bezi. Um, named for Dr. Oswaldo Bayez, who is a renowned Ecuadorian biologist who dedicated his life to teaching of science, did loads of like popular articles and stuff. Um, I have to say, though, this snake is basically just a more brown version of George Jetai. Yes. If I was Oswaldo, yes. I'd be livid. It's <laughs> a more chocolatey brown, and the tan is more brown as well. Yeah. So it's more... Yeah. It's got a sort of... Comparing it to another snake, maybe the sort of browns of an Indian python, maybe? Ooh, yeah, okay. I like that. Spicy. Like the latter half, maybe? Yeah, good... Um, not, the, not the front not the front half. Good analogy. Um, or simile. So, uh, yeah, that one also found in Ecuador. Uh, and then the last one was Dipsas Clevi. That's the smallest. Only 277 SPF. Ooh, little tiny one. Um, yeah. yeah, that one... Yeah, I like that one too. I mean, it was the least, you know, fun. <laughs> if I saw one, though, I'd be really excited. So, and then the last one was Dipsas Clebi, which is active again at night. Um, this one, they actually know a bit more about. It hangs around in vegetation arboreally above the ground, above fifty centimeters. Um, it likes all kinds of places, from cloud forests to montane forests to pasture forest borders. Um, occasionally, close to rivers. They hang around underground or among shrubs in rural gardens. Um, sometimes they coil above leaves in the daytime when they're not hunting. Um, and then they also have a propensity to cross roads after warm days, apparently. Well, there you go. Makes them easy to survey for. Yeah. Um, one laid six eggs. Also, the biggest of the ones we've described at a grand total of 608 millimetres SVM. It's a big snake. Or well, at least the holotype is the biggest of the ones. Very nice. Um, yeah. This one's found in the Ecuadorian Andes, a little bit higher elevation, above 1,246. And this one's named after Casey Kleber, um, who was a big supporter of field exposition, expeditions to Ecuador. Um, yeah. Saw Peru in 2011 and became an active supporter of conservation and scientific projects, which is really cool. I have to say, if um, if the authors of this paper considered putting these photographs that they've taken on some kind of poster, I would buy it. They are good quality photos, aren't they? Yeah, like seriously good. Yeah. I really like seeing them all next to each other as well because you can see the like subtle differences in their morphology. Like all mm. these snakes are similar but subtly different. Even you know, quite obviously so in lots of cases, and their colorations are wildly variable. I mean, there's snakes in here which just look absolutely mental. Um, you know, you've got everything from like black and yellow bands to you know grey banded king snake style, corn snake style, yeah, Malayan crates style. And sort of strange, strange colors in there. We've, there are some really Odd shades of brown and weird sort of bluey greys. Hmm. Which one is um, it? Yeah. There's one called uh, Dipsas Pavanina from uh, Ecuador's Zamora province, and that's on page 101 T. Um, and that oh, thing is crazy. T. It like changes the front half of the snake oh, yeah. different to the back half of the snake. Yeah. They're, they're all just remarkable in completely different and unique ways. It's um, 
Yeah. Each one of their heads just slightly different. Hmm. You've got ones that have sort of got some level of mimicry going on. It just has to be. Yeah. And others that are just... Fully cryptic. Pure camo. Yeah. 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 Really cool. Uh, What an awesome group. This paper's well worth a look up. You can find it online for free. Um, Yeah, well worth looking just for the pictures of these crazy snakes. Yeah. Really awesome. Really awesome stuff. So that is our Speciesers of the Bi-Week. It is. Oh, I just wanted to mention about, um, you know, buying land, generally speaking, isn't necessarily the best method of conservation and lots of NGOs don't really do it um, because it's one thing to buy the land, but you've actually got to protect it. And Well, and in some countries, depending on how much land you own, that also bumps up your tax. So basically just by virtue of owning it, you eat into your own sort of balance sheet. <laughs> right. I didn't know that. But, um, yeah, it's because, mm. you know, you can buy the land, but that doesn't mean that people aren't going to go and poach there um, or whatever, what have you. So, um, yeah, this... Yeah, bringing it back to the leopard stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, this... this, this com- Cecil the lion. <laughs> well, that's it. I mean, this company, the Rainforest Trust, um, who were sort of involved in this work... Um, were they involved? Yeah, yeah, Rainforest Trust supporters, because the Rainforest Trust president, um, well, I don't know if they actually were, but basically, I had a look at the Rainforest Trust stuff, and it's really cool, because they don't just buy the land, they actually, like, lobby governments to increase protection on land, um, and that means that, you know, the government themselves are actually guarding land from illegal activity, which would Mm. be exceptionally difficult for non-governmental organisations to provide, um, you know, because... I mean, it costs a lot of money to feed a workforce. And when you're trying to protect hundreds or thousands of acres of rainforest, you just got no chance. So by liaising with local conservationists, raising money to buy land, and then working with local people to provide like sustainable incomes and sort of ongoing protection, they actually do a service of conservation to the forest. So they're a really cool organisation to check out. Yeah, talk about frontline conservation. Yeah. That is it right there. Yeah. Yeah, so have a look at the Rainforest Trust. Cool. Well, I think that just about wraps it up. We got any other business? That does. We do have any other business. I believe we have some corrections. Oh. I'm looking for them now because I forgot to pull them out. In the meantime, I have an update on Crockfest, which uh, we plugged in oh, our yes. last episode. Um, they had a really good day at Wild Florida, raised in excess of twenty-seven thousand US dollars. Flipping heck! Yeah, Whoa. so that's all going towards the uh, Apoporus River Cayman expedition to try and rediscover that's awesome. this. Yeah, it's super cool. So, um, yeah, well done, everybody, and Wild Florida who hosted. Big up! Yeah. If you missed it, that's... you fool! It might be another one next year. I don't know how they do it. Look up Crockfest well, Dog. I would have thought that if they can raise. 27,000 for a expedition specifically to search for a crocodile in the deepest, darkest Amazon. I'm willing to bet they'll try again. Yeah, I'd say so. Okay, so corrections on stuff last time. I wrongly said that Hoplobactracus tigrinus wasn't a problem in Madagascar. But basically, I was labouring under the impression that absence of evidence was evidence of absence which it most certainly seems not to be according to 
Mr. Schertz of the, I'm sure people uh, who listen to this will definitely be interested in the Squamates podcast, which is now uh, up and running, right? Yeah. Which we mentioned last time, surely, <clears throat> yes. But basically, point is, popular backtrackers is a problem. Uh, they do eat prey, big prey, and it is expanding. Not great. Didn't get the research that the toad has warranted, probably because of a lack of uh, exciting analogies like Australia, and potentially because it was also introduced uh, purposely for farming. Because people love to eat the legs of frogs. I've done it myself, and um, yeah, it was fine. Could do it again, but except from vegetarian now. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I think it just goes to show, doesn't it, that human beings have a propensity to hate animals that are poisonous and a propensity to ignore things which are delicious. <laughs> well, this is, this is the thing. I mean, it, it, it sort of... The most damaging and widespread invasive species are the ones that we tend to keep very close at hand. Hmm. Um, although we don't tend to eat rat very frequently. You speak for yourself. Uh, <laughs> you just said you were a vegetarian. Yeah, Rats rat pie doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> you can't stop me, copper. Rats and insects, Ali. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, cool. Um, well, the other thing we are we were unsure about was uh, the prep stuff. Uh, whether it was basically how to do it correctly, and it does seem to be a a. Uh, tend to be a fiddly way you cutting out glands is the better way to do it as opposed to a lack of cooking that I might have suggested it oh, being a what? problem. So you can eat the toads. You can eat them. Yes. You have to be careful though. But so it's like this is this is well this is the thing is I knew you could eat them because you can pretty much eat anything if you cook it right. But the point is that people do eat even cane toads and stuff. It is possible to eat melanostictus, but that being said, there are three or four papers out there a about people being quite seriously poisoned because of bad prep or improper identification of frog eggs and they ate these toad eggs instead that weren't that still had enough toxin in to cause some problems. Ah uh, yeah, see I never even considered so, the eggs. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. It's oh. not a it's not basically it is possible if you do the prep work. But you know, there are papers out there where, where people are being hurt by it. So, yeah, um, yes, it's doable. What's watch out. Do it right. Right, well, there we go. Case closed. So, um, yeah, if you do feel like eating anything in- invasive toads, just, for goodness sake, watch a YouTube video. Don't just try and do it off your own back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. You need a, you know, another Ready, Steady, Cook episode on it or something, don't you? Yeah. Ready, steady. Because ready, steady cook still exists and is relevant mm. and is a, a timely reference that people get and understand and enjoy. Yeah, I wouldn't have called it that especially relevant, but yeah, it's still, <laughs> it's not relevant to me. I don't think it's relevant to anybody, mate. <sighs> Big up green peppers. <laughs> <laughs> They're all gone. It's a, it's a dead show. Um, well, that's about it then, is it? I haven't got anything else. Um... We should mention our social media stuff. Yes, we should. I think that 
covers everything I have forgotten. If there are more corrections, I don't think there were. No, I haven't got any written down. Um, but, you know, I've been pretty lackadaisical. Anyway, so uh, social media-wise, we're on Facebook. More corrections. Yes, we do. We don't always say it. And that's a bit, you know, we get loads of stuff wrong. We barely know what we're talking about. So get in touch. Um, Please get in touch. Yeah. Please let us know where we've made mistakes because... We can't just be going around saying a bunch of nonsense. It's, uh, it's not okay. Yeah, yeah. Genuinely, pick up your phone and tweet us. Tweet us angrily if you feel like you have to. Um, so you can get in touch with us on facebook.com slash herp highlights. Twitter, we are at herp highlights. We're herp highlights at gmail.com. Um, we're on Patreon. That's P A T R E O N forward slash herp highlights if you want to donate help keep the podcast running we'd be exceptionally grateful for that and yeah i think or if you just really really want a new mug that's got a big fat bufo bufo common toad on it uh track down our red bubble store yeah or a sticker stick something get a sticker of an animal um and stick it on on the animal stick it on your books stick it on your computer Or, or books Stick it on your body. Stick it wherever you want. Stick it on your friend's back. Ha <laughs> um, <laughs> Toad back. Yeah, toad. Hey, what a what, hilarious what joke. Boy, what boy, <laughs> do whatever you like. Yeah. What's that? A nail to a Priscina? Whatever. Yeah, anyway. Thanks for listening. Yes, thank you for listening. Hope to... Hope to uh, Don't do the hope to. There's no <laughs> hope to that ends well, man. Oh. Hope to... In a fortnight's time. Yeah. Bye. Bye.